But let's pray. Father, thank you for, oh, just the opportunity to sing, Lord. Just to belt out truth. While the world is afraid of the breath of someone else, we are giving every breath we have to tell you how much we love you and how grateful we are. What a difference, Lord. What a difference in the church and the world. But that's what you said we were to be. We are not to be like the world. You've saved us out of the world. The world is passing away with all its lust. We're not, in the wor- we're not of the world. And I pray that you would continue to help us, Lord, in this day and age. And Lord, when we are in the world, and certainly not of it, would we shine the light of the glory of Christ. It's going to get easier to show a difference in this world. We're not going to blend in as easy. And so I pray you'd strengthen us to do that. Lord, we thank you for the Old Testament. We know that you've completed everything on the cross. You came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Lord, your word says in Romans 10 that you, your son, Christ, is the end of the law. And yet, and yet, there's such good in there for us to read and study. We understand how society is to conduct itself and how it can have some semblance of normalcy. And then how we can please you, God, by living a way that rejects sinfulness and cruelty and and really love you. So teach us great things, even from your law tonight, as we look at Exodus 21. May you be glorified by all that we've said and sung tonight when we're done. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 21, we'll do our best to get through this chapter. I honestly want to go through like five chapters on a night. It's just impossible for me. I, I... I go, why could I just lump some of this together and give you one thought? That's, that was my goal. And then I get into verse one, and I go, oh. And then verse two, oh my goodness, there's so much there. And then uh, three and four, oh, you just, and you just start mining away. Right? You're down there with your little miner hat on, and you're just digging away. Oh, here's another nugget. And uh, so, sorry, I'm gonna do one chapter tonight. Lord willing, we'll see if we can get that far. Well, when we get to this section of what, the often has been referred to as what they call the book of covenant. So this is the reflection of the law, the Ten Commandments to be given, and this is kind of not only this section, but also in Deuteronomy 15 is a good spot, some other spots in Numbers and other places where this gets expounded on more. But here is, is where they refer to this as kind of the flushing out of the Ten Commandments. And there's at least 42 different cases in these next couple of chapters that... Um, God gives so they know how to handle difficulties and issues that come up between them as a nation. And so what he does is he provides these paradigms and these case laws which would allow Israel to think how they could apply God's truth, his commands, ethically in various situations. And they're very helpful when you think about some of this. As as we highlight some of these paradigms here, um, we'll see that the case laws of Israel were very applicable for society. There, there's, as I'm studying this, I go, oh, if we'd only do that, uh, if we'd only do that, if we'd only do that, <laughs> things would be easier in life here on this planet under the sun. But of course, we deal with sinful man, right? And law was given to help them see their sin and see a way to live in this world, in this fallen world, but still find joy and peace and some harmony, right? And that's what, of course, Ecclesiastes is about. Solomon, most likely King Solomon writing or somebody's writing through him to say, look, life under the sun is bad. <laughs> and it doesn't change. It's, it's always this way because of fallen man. But there are ways to live in society that make it bearable. And unfortunately, we're watching our nation depart from some of those things. Now, the instruction here focuses on living conditions. Everyday living conditions. And we will notice that the instruction focuses not so much on property and things like that, although there's a little bit on that, but mostly on the person. God is concerned about persons. Slave, free, Endangered servant, whatever it is, God's focus on that person, not so much on the things. And he, he actually seems, when you study these, 
it is not that he does not have his eye on those who maybe are a little well off, but are off. But the Bible really watches out for those who are disadvantaged. Isn't that true all the way through? If you see the people even Christ deals with, I mean, we have the Zacchaeuses and the Nicodemuses and Joseph Arimathea, so those men are there. But most of the time, they're blind men by the road, bleeding women, you know, children have lost their lives, and so forth. And so the Bible really is pointed towards those that go through struggles. The Lord is there to bring justice and, and to help them most often. So God has always been concerned with the widow and the orphan. And so when James gets to the law, what does he say? He go, remember how he sums up the law? What, so James 1, 29, is that right? 27, something like that. That to fulfill the law, if you want to fulfill the law, take care of the orphan and the widow. See, that's God's mentality. He cares for those who can't always take care of themselves. And see, he grants others finances. But those who don't maybe have all the means that maybe we have, the Lord watches over them, and you'll see that in this text. This is a welfare program that focuses on the truly needy, not those who are plagued with the sin of laziness and, and desires for a handout. There was none of that in the Old Testament. <laughs> there wasn't people who just did nothing. You died <laughs> if you did that. And so the Bible is very clear that uh, God will help, um, but he comes to the aid of those that often have to sell themselves in order to survive. That's how, that's how people lived their lives. Imagine that in today's world. Well, let's look at a couple of these thoughts here this morning. I hope you have some notes um, First of all, case law about Hebrew servants. Case law about Hebrew servants. Look at verse one of me. Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. So hear this word ordinances or an uh, advanced case law. I was talking to Gia Quinto. He, I think he's helping somewhere. I go, Brian, you should be teaching this text. He's the lawyer. Um, but there's so much law in this about just law. But these are advanced case laws, right? Advanced meaning God is laying out a case before there's a case. So that when the case comes, they know how to handle the case. Does that make sense? Now, in other words, if A happens, then B is appropriate for the judgment. That's what he's going to do down through this. So it is not implied that these judgments are now given for the first time. I don't think that's what the Bible is doing. Look, people are people, right? And doubtlessly they've seen these situations before. But from this point on, what Moses is doing through, as God leads him, is he's now giving a legal binding document that God has spoken and has ratified the, co- the covenant. So some of the situations we're going to look at in these case laws today, certainly that's happened before. They lived in Egypt for 400 years. Somebody's, you know, cow gored somebody else, right? So... Um, but now it's ratified. Now this is how God says to deal with it. So there's an accountability. Notice a little phrase, set before them. Well, that idea carries uh, the authoritative idea here. God has set this before you. You're responsible for it now. Study what I have written and live by those laws. Now, verses two through six, we see them, what I call the male family servant. Look at with me at... Um, well, let me give you a couple thoughts and then we'll look at this. I want to set this up. The, the word slave here is, is probably better translated servant. I know I think the ESV and the NES both go slave with it. But it's, it's a unique word. And see, Israel saw that the way they took care of their servants or in the way the master cared for the servant fell under the fifth command. They, uh, they honestly saw the, the servants, they, the, the servants were to honor their masters, right? To honor your father and mother, honor your master. And so this, they felt this slid under that. So, so a servant in the home of an Israelite was to be cared for at a, a much higher level than, than any servants or slaves around the world. So slave has a certain negative overtone, doesn't it? When you think of the word slave, we, of course, uh, that's a terrible blight on our nation, um, and, and we, that was, comes to mind. But, but that's, that's not what God intended here. 
And you think about the conditions that they had in Egypt that Israel found themselves in for 400 years and at least 250 of those years was pure slavery with no hope, right? There wasn't any hope of getting out of that. And so God did not want those kinds of conditions set among his people, among the nation of Israel. So what we see more of as an overarching principle in this section, and it's the, it's the Hebrew term, it's the whole setup as we study this, that it's more like an indentured laborer, an indentured servant who has entered into a contract to work for a family under certain terms and conditions. It's way different than what the world, what, often the world looks at the Bible and says, oh, the Bible's full of all this slavery and all this stuff, you know. How can we ever believe that? Well, they don't know their Bible. And they certainly don't know what was going on in that time and how different Israel was than the rest of the world because of God's law here. So these arrangements were not condemned as wrong, but they were regulated. And that's what God did. He regulates this servitude to make sure it's not exploited. Now, look with me at verse two. We gotta get going here. We got a lot to do tonight. If you, buy a, if you buy a Hebrew slave or servant, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh year, he shall go out as a free man without payment. So the situation that, that, that was, was someone found themselves in maybe impoverished, right? They could, I mean, you don't have anything. You're, you're in debt. You're, you're, you're in trouble. What God has provided is that you could sell yourself as a hired worker. Now, certainly there would be no longer some freedoms if you do that that you would normally would enjoy, but they were not a slave because they were expecting their freedom that was going to come on the seventh year. See, it's a very different program here. And after the six years, they would be released and they would be stored back to the community. See, this was the Sabbath, what they called the Sabbath principle. They would do this with their lamb. They would farm their lamb for six years and then they would let the land rest. Now, I've done that in some ways. When you grow alfalfa, you might go six, seven, eight years, depending on how stimmy your stuff gets and how, how difficult, how thick it grows, and there's some reasons for that. And then you've got to plow it up, and, and you put it into something else to let the land rest, and then you go back to alfalfa so the, the, so the nutrients get back in it. And so this was the idea. So they had a Sabbath rest and a lot of things. And here was in their indentured servants, in their, their servants that they bought and purchased, they were to let them go every seventh year this was the year of jubilee and on this year there was great rejoicing because indentured servants would once have been getting become free now unlike true slavery they were they were no longer in servitude like generation to generation i mentioned this earlier when they were in egypt think about this a man lived in that time, I have to go back and look at it. I know in Jesus' day, it was around 42 years was about the average. It might have been less when you're a slave in Egypt. But say you lived 40 years. Well, 250 years, that didn't take you, how many generations was that? Of men and women who died in, with no hope of getting out. So God does not want them to do that. They wants them at six years then to be freed. Now, Deuteronomy 15 gives a lot of more uh, instruction here. But listen. At the end of those six years, they were to release the slaves and supply them liberally so that they could be restored back into the community as functioning people. That's real different. And so when people attack the Bible on slavery, you need to understand this so we can, you can defend the scriptures and say, well, that's not what the Bible taught. Now, look at verses three and four. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him a son, or daughters, the wife and the children shall belong to the master, and he shall, and he, and he shall go out alone. Now, these verses for, focus on the person, not the property here. And if the servant came in unmarried, he's, of course, here you see it in the verse, he's supposed to leave unmarried. But if he was previously married, then his master has no right to detain his wife. He can take her with him. However, along the process, if this servant or this man in servitude here if his master gives him a wife she's got to complete the six years as well he can't just say well i'm free so she is free she's paying off debt as well now what god is doing at first you kind of look at this and it seems well that seems kind of cruel give him his wife well i think probably people did at times but but think about this 
it, it seems cruel in Western thought, but what God's doing is lets this man go free. He's now has his debt pay. He's free to go work and earn and can pay her off. And that happened many times. The price of a slave was about 30 shekels. Um, that's what Christ got sold for. Uh, that was made pretty consistent throughout the Old Testament. And he could buy her back. Or he could wait to the next year of Jubilee. When that came around, she was free. Now, listen, we still use contracts today. It's not quite like this, but, you know, there's contracts. Anybody been on a contract with somebody? You got a business and you got a contract you got to fulfill for a few years? My son Connor plays for the Giants. He's under a contract. He can't say, he can't walk in and say, you know what, I really want to go play for the Red Sox. Uh, yeah, we have this little piece of paper with your signature on it. <laughs> You're not leaving unless we trade you. I mean, that's, we still have these, and this is what it is. They, 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 they were going to die if they did not sell themselves, in a sense, contract themselves to work for this master. And so God was providing a means that was fair and protected them and gave them an opportunity to rebuild and go back out. Look at verse 5 and 6. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I do not want to go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Now these verses are the result of both parties obeying the covenant. The master loving and caring for his indentured servant like God intended to. The servant loving his master and honoring him and submitting to him as he would submit to God. And the result of that was often that this became a very family situation. Now, I love this part of this. And these, these often became very special relationships between master and servant. And in the year of Jubilee, the servant would, could be offer himself as a permanent fixture in the family, as one who serves him for the rest of his life. And, and this would be displayed, you can just see it in the text. Okay, um, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm pulling a lifetime contract with you, drive the all through my ear. And when you saw a servant that had his ear pierced through there, you would say, I don't know who that man is, but he has publicly declared he belongs to his master forever. Now, is this starting at home? Listen to some verses. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul called himself a bondservant over and over. I am a lifer. I am forever dedicated to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I will not leave his side. That's how Paul looked at his relationship. We all know Paul was a great guy. Here's James, James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Peter, 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received the faith of the same kinds as ours by the righteousness of God our Savior, Christ Jesus. Jude, <laughs> all these apostles followed this. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Revelations 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservant, this is John speaking of himself, the things which must soon take place, and sent and communicated it by his angels to his bondservant John. That's how he opens the book. And then if you go all the way down to Revelation chapter 15, there we find the song of Moses, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God. So when Moses is writing this, and that's so fascinating, isn't it? Because you don't see him in the Old Testament mention that he is a bondservant, but they believed that Moses, as he wrote the great hymns of God, the great truths of God, we'll see more of that when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, he claims that he is a lifer for God. And he was. To the last moment, till he died on the Mount Nebo, he was a lifer. And so, man, what a great application here. Are you a bondservant of the Lord? Any lifers in here? I mean, ones that say, that's it. I'm with him forever. Praise God. And he did it, not me. So, so the next question is, do we act like lifers? It's one thing to say, I'm a Christian. I'm a lifer. I'm a bond servant. I dedicate my life. I mean, a lot of people have said that and then fell into sin and we never saw him again. This is a man who has made a decision in this text 
that I will give my all in all for my master. Not perfection, but consistency. Live in your life for the master. Now, look at verses 7 through 11. Now we get to the female family servant. Notice how I'm calling, there was a male family servant, now we're getting to the female family servant. Notice the terms I'm using. It's all coming out of the Hebrew. I, 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 I go, this isn't just a slave. This is a family. He's part of the family. He's in servitude, or she's in servitude, but she is family. Now, it's important to understand that the women were not looked upon as the same as men in the ancient world. I think you know that, right? It's, women had a very difficult role. They were very vulnerable in the Old Testament, much more so than we've ever seen in our lifetimes. Uh, it's a very cruel world. But of course, this greatly bothers a lot of people when they think about this, and they often read these passages wrong again. However, as we look at the situations here in verse 7 through 11, we're going to see that women were considered considerably, um, ha- had a larger protection put upon them by God from abuse and oppressive treatment. Look at verse 7 with me. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave or servant, she is to not go free as a male slave do. Now, at first, you go, uh, yeah, that's probably not a very good situation, isn't it? Be careful. Why would a man sell his daughter? Would any of you sell your daughter? Something's really bad. And that happened. That, I mean, you don't have welfare programs and you don't have all that stuff going on at the level you see in our world today. Difficulties come. But when you see this, there's... You, you have to first realize, even in this difficult situation, whatever's going on here, which was, must have been tragic, there's still a father who's head of the household here. And he has a God-given right to do what he needs to do with his family. And I know that rubs on the world, but this is, this is what the Bible says. This is God's word. And, and while the need to sell his daughter into service, it just must have been such a desperate economic circumstance for this to happen but God knew it would happen this was part of the ordinary life of the ancient world there was tremendous class in the world I remember going to India and uh, they work really hard to say there's not a class system and you can't get off the plane before you see it you go oh my goodness there's a class system here but that was that's always been present in life under the sun in a sinful world now there were significant differences in a way a woman was to be treated compared to a male servant in servitude here. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 12 clearly outlines that both female and male servants could go free on the seventh year. So when we look at this passage, it might, it's not what we think it is, I think, at first. The verses in chapter 20, 21 pertain to a permanent residing of a woman with a man. So there's a distinction between those who are, are domestic servants, they're in for the six years and then freed on the Sabbath, and those being sold as a wife or a concubine, in some cases, to a new owner here. And that's, I think, what we have here in this text. If she's been given as a wife, this was looked at as a permanent situation. That's why the wording is the way it is, we will see in this text. And already back in God's economy, as messed up as sin had made it in the Old Testament, God still looked at marriage, even in its twisted ways sometimes with wives, multiple wives, concubines, it was to be for life. Isn't that interesting? God has always looked at marriage that way. Look at verse eight with me. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who, de- who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have the authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. Now, if the master chooses not to keep her during this probationary period, he's not allowed just to make money off of her. <laughs> Let's, well, we'll just turn her, right? You know, like you do cows or something like that, right? Or cars. She's not allowed to do that. God's protecting her. That's, that's not how she's to be handled. And so her family now has the right to purchase her freedom and redeem her back from the contract there. And she just could not be sold outside of Israel. Israel was a very safe place to the rest of the world. You have to understand that. You get out. Oh, man, I read some documents of the Hittites and the Canaanites. You did not want to be a slave of those people. It's all over. And if you're a woman, forget it. Throw yourself off a bridge. They didn't have a bridge, maybe, but throw yourself off something. 
Israel, if you had to be an indentured servant, if you had to be in a slave or servant role of any country, you want it to be in Israel because God was protecting them. So the master does have great authority, but you can clearly see there's a protection of these female servants. Look at verse nine. If he designates her for her son, he shall, he shall deal with her according to the customs of daughters. So the father may select a woman as a bride for his son, and, and the woman was virtually adopted into that family. That's, that's that idea. She's, she's now become the custom of daughter. She's brought into that family. Uh, you see this with Jacob and going back for Rachel and so forth and, and how she's brought back and how she's greeted. And, and it's, there was just a, a unique way. I've ran into several people since I've been back here um, whose parents were, um, what's it called? Arranged, thank you, arranged marriage. And uh, this, this is not very far ago. But there's rules for that. God laid down laws for those things. Look at verses 10 and 11. And if, and if he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he would not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So in these terms here, she's, she's, it's, there's a, there was a, clearly a betrothal period, right, that they went through. We see this all the way down to Joseph and Mary. Um, if, if he decides that he does not want to keep her or, or really have her as his wife, he is still to take care of her. He's actually, if you study this, and I looked at this long and hard today, he's supposed to give her a full and rich life. She's not to be deprived of anything. And if she is one of his wives, she has the right to intimacy and to bear children. So it's extremely clear that what is imposed in this command is much more than a minimal offering of rights to an indentured woman. She is to be part of the family. She is to have all the things the woman should have. So God's clearly making man responsible for woman here. So in verse 11, it shows that his master does not approve of her during this probation period. He needs to care for her needs and give her her freedom. She can be released. It's like, you know, hey, honey, you know, it doesn't look like this is gonna work out. Here's the ring back. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what's going on here. All these commands are greatly different in the nations around them. They, these were not there. They were safe in Israel. Second thought, case law about violence and death penalty, verses 12 through 17. This next section begins with offenses that violate the sixth command, you shall not murder, right? So this is a problem. Man's been killing each other since the first two kids, right? Cain killed Abel. This has been a problem. So in the sixth command, you shall not murder. So the covenant gives a number of cases here involving injuries that intent or ended up in life ending or life endangerment. So, so there are, there's a whole section here that deals with this realm of law that, that property falls under stealing or, or how you should react to those who you're with as a family, as a servant family. But here it's going after what do you do with life? Now look at verse 12 with me. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. The most serious offenses of murder and manslaughter are dealt with first of all, premeditated, going and striking someone. There is no, there is no wiggle room in this. This requires death. And nations that held to this found such success in having societies that were safe and made more money and, and had good life, and nations that turn away from dealing with this found themselves in great problems. Now, of course, there's always abuse to things, and, and we saw that with the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was not in any way a murderer. A murderer was released for him. Verse 13, but if he, but if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint you a place to which we may flee. Well, the general principles are given here for qualifications that show justifying circumstances. This was not intent to kill, right? You've heard that legal term. There was no intent to kill here. 
And so the phrase, but God let him fall into his hands. So this is a description of a situation where there's no premeditated design of murder. So the act was beyond human control. Something happened that we would call an accident. But yet here, the way Moses writes this is God, God did this. God allowed this to happen. And so it falls under the sovereignty of God. And then, of course, you see the first mention of what, what we call, they call later sanctuary, sanctuary cities here. And, and the law will get more into that later um, in time. But let me just stop real quick. This is in San Francisco. San Francisco is a sanctuary city, and it is, oh, my goodness. We hated going there. <laughs> Bobby's raising his hand because he's taking a trip out there, and he's asking me where to go. I said, don't. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I told him some safe places to go. But it's, you know, people, you know, a gal gets shot with her dad, you know, and it's just crazy. That's not any idea. This, if you're truly innocent, at least you could go somewhere till your case could be proven, right? So that, because remember, murder was dealt with quickly and swiftly um, right away because murder needed a life to take its place and that's the way God had written. But uh, if truly there, there was really not, it was, it was an act of God, it was an accident, it wasn't something that really happened on your part, you didn't premeditate it, you could escape to these six sanctuary cities that were in Israel. And, and Moses will get into that much more, but boy, they're nothing like what we see today. Verse 14. If, however, a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. Now, if premeditated murder, God's not going to protect you is the idea here, right? And we see this with several kings, um, uh, several other, some kings and some men. Joab, I think, is one of them. Remember Joab, because uh, he killed, uh, what's the real fast guy? Uh, my mind's not working there. He, well, who's that? Azahel. Not Absalom, but he killed one of the brothers. Azahel. Azahel, that's right. And he killed him. So remember, he runs to the altar and he holds on to the altar and he says, uh, that's not going to get you. Get him. And so we see that. We see several kings' moms run and hang on to the altar after they led their sons in a total um, idolatry and so forth. And he's saying, and there's not even an altar yet. That's why this is case law, right? <laughs> they don't have this yet. So you can't hide out there. That's not going to be the escape. You're going to die. Then look at verse 15. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. The attempt at murder of parents is the death sentence. We make them celebrities and make movies out of them. They're, they're to die. That breaks down everything that God set up as a family and he deals swiftly with it. And yet that's a real problem today. Verse 16 is trafficking. Look at this. He who kidnaps a man or a woman or a person, whether he sells him or, or he is found in his possession, they shall surely put, put to death. You know what they're doing in, in California? They're finding kids, putting duct tape over them, putting the mask back over them and walking out and going to Mexico with them and their children are never seen again. And he just goes, Scott, is that really true? Our friends that were here last Sunday, you could ask them. Their friend was in Walmart. Came out, walked out to her car. There's a gal sitting there with a window down about that far. She says, hey, can you got a little daughter with him. Can your daughter, I dropped my keys in there. Can your daughter climb in there and get my keys? I appreciate it. I can't, I can't fit there. I can't get there. And, and the gal just wise enough said, something's not right here. And she says, well, no, uh, let me go get some help. I have AAA. Let me go, oh, no, 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 just put her in there. It'll be real quick and we'll be done. I gotta go and so forth. And so she backs up and she starts walking towards to go get security. The gal pulls her keys out of her pocket, jumps in the car and drives away. This is the stuff that's happening. And you get across that Mexican line, you'll never see those children again. Trafficking's at an all-time high right now. And they use things like COVID to, to produce more of it. People are just, tremendously wicked God's word says put them to death put them to death this is not people who should be in a society and yet they have attorneys and lawyers and rarely does that ever get taken care of look at verse 17 he who curses his father and his mother shall surely put to death well you think trying to kill him was bad here now and I don't think this is just impulsive words spoken in anger to a parent because maybe all of our kids would be dead and maybe we probably would have been dead so they wouldn't have even been around. <laughs> Am I not right? 
<laughs> I know, we can think back a little bit and say, boy, I said some things to my mom and dad, I wish I didn't know. This is an assault on the God-given setup of family. This is the idea of it. Curse the way God has set this up is the idea here. And the, it's a violent threat against God and parents, and so they are not to be allowed to live. You could trust teenagers in these times walking down the streets. <laughs> Third, case law of assault and bodily injury, 18 through 27. Case laws of assault and bodily injury. In this section, we're given four cases that are really cool to look at. Um, I, I mean, you could just study this in law class, and, and they're, they're so well-defined here. Uh, and, and these are sentences less than death penalty, right? So case number one, is 18 and 19. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. If men have a quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his losses of time and shall take care of him until he is completely healed. Well, this first case is not one of premeditated criminal case here, but one where injury has occurred during the course of an argument that kind of turned to blows and fisticuffs happen. Um, There's not really a weapon involved, might be a rock or his fist there, but, but not something that he went to the scene in order to kill somebody. So the scripture does not permit the use of of force to settle the dispute here. That's not what it does. So both parties here, you can see this case, and this happened all the time. You got two Israelites that are maybe had a little too much of something and, and they get in a fight or they're upset about, you know, who stepped over the line by their tent or whatever happened. And, um, and, and so they, they ha- they, they're both wrong and they need authorities to settle it. And so he, they're giving them a case law, how you're gonna settle this. Now notice the consequences to their action. They, they're not fatal, One party is temporarily injured in there. You can see it in the text. One who is injured, the the other is to compensate, not just medical expenses, but earning losses. So so you've you've knocked him out of work. You've got to now nurse him back to health, whether that's you or you pay someone to do that. And then you've got to cover his earnings because he has to take care of his family. So this was basic information that is given to help, help them coincide together living in this tent community now certainly there there could be one-sided disputes here but the basic principle when you read this is that is clearly laid out that the people are responsible for their actions if you do something that afflicts difficulty on somebody else you're responsible for it can you imagine that be responsible for your own actions For some reason, when something doesn't go the way you want it, some kind of judgment, right or wrong, you have the right to break down somebody's lifelong family-owned business and take all their stuff out. It's so preposterous, isn't it, what we've seen happen in our country that was set on based on these type of laws where we've got to. And and even in this, these men are not right. They're fighting. They shouldn't be fighting. There's a problem between them, a sinful issue, But even in the sinful issue, they are to be responsible for the health of that other person. This is a case law, so this is going to happen. And they're to deal with it this way. Look at case number two, verses 20 through 21. If a man strikes his male or female slave or servant with a rod, and he dies at his hands, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for for he is his property. Now, this second case, there's a modification to the previous case, right? Which covers the situation of an individual and his servant. So this is a little different here. And and in the ancient days, as you study this, according to the text, there was acceptable means that a master could discipline his servant. The rod was not considered a lethal weapon, never has. But... It was to be used carefully, not used in a dangerous way or a life-threatening way. Now, if you look back according to verse 12, this offense committed by the master was deserving of death. If he kills him, verse 12 already talks about it, then his life 
is, even though he owns him. So, so you have to understand, even these commands may fall under, they've already talked about what's deserving of death and what's not deserving of death. So if he dies, and that we see in verse 20, he is deserving of verse 12, and he's deserving of death. Later in the law, um, we'll see this later as we keep working our way through the Pentateuch, take glimpses of this, the whole community would come together and stone this individual. But this gave the servant in Israel a legal and human right, didn't it? The, uns, the, the surrounding nations, you could beat your slave all you want. There was, there was no, no way to stop that. You had no voice. These people have the voice of God. And it protected them. You, you go, well, how do you know this to be true? Just listen to this verse. This is out of Job. Job 31, verse 13 and following. He's defending himself right. His, his so-called friends are attacking him that he's got sin in his life somewhere and why these bad things are happening to him. And he says, if I have despised the claim, the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me. Now stop right there. This is, I, I think Job is pre, um, pre-Adamic, meaning uh, pre, pre uh, uh, excuse me, Abraham. So I think he's early. A lot of people think he's after. There's a big debate on that. But think about this. Job knows that you're supposed to treat your slave right and they have a right to make a claim. I mean, this is, this is the, and the reason I think Job's early because there's no priesthood. You don't see any of that. Job is the priest of his home, so forth, when you see that. Here, when you read Job, he says, have I, have I despised the claims of my male or female slaves? When they filed a complaint against me, see, there's a right. They can say, I'm not being treated right. They can claim that, and the justice system says, Job, you treat him right, or treat her right. And then he says in verse 14, what then could I do when God arises? If I didn't handle their claim, how do I stand and talk to God? Now, just stop here for a minute. Think about some practical ways. We treat each other like slaves sometimes. Too often, marriages work that way. You want to stand before God and you treat your spouse like a slave? Or your children? I mean, these, these are indentured servants to Job. And he says, look, if I've, if not, I've heard their complaint and not treated them right, how would I stand before and talk to God? And then he goes on to say, and when he calls, God calls me to account. What will I answer him? Listen, brother, what did you do with the people I gave to you and trusted you to for a short time and someday they'll be released by, by death or by rapture to go to be with God? What did you do with them? See, I think we give an account for those things. We're not, we're not, we don't give an account for sin. They're paid for, but we give an account for what God gave us, and Job knows that. He said, did not he who made me in the womb make him also? Now, that's a great verse for abortion as well as equality, right? He says, that person in the womb is equal to me. And the same one was fashioned to us in the womb. What a beautiful verse. So this is a real practicality to it. And I'm, I'm trying to drive the point home because if you are on Twitter or you see any of the social justice movement and some of the stuff that's going on, they're attacking the Bible. And they, they're accusing Christians of holding to slavery because of things like this. And they have no idea what God was teaching. They don't understand the culture it was in. They have not studied the word of God to even make any comments on it. These people were very careful with their indentured servants. Job says, look, I'm going to stand before God and give an account of what I've done with them. Now, look, sin is a horrible thing, and there's tons of abuse, isn't there? And certainly there was that, but God is protecting them. We've got to keep moving. Look at verse 21. If, however, he survives a day or two, that's good, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. So if the servant doesn't die but makes a recovery, then the master is given the benefit of the doubt. And you go, well, what does this mean for he is his property? Well, this is back to the understanding that this person owes that master something. He's got a contract. He's paying off the debt that he was served for. And look, there's also sin going the other way. The master paid for his servant. And if this servant has been rebellious and disobedient, that happened. The owner has the right to help that servant fulfill his contract, right? We discipline our children because this is good for you. 
God tells you to honor your father and mother, you shouldn't speak that way to them. Discipline comes because this is good for you to fulfill your contract to God that you would honor us. And hopefully you're learning to do that from your heart, son or daughter. Now, of course, you can see how the abuse would come and people, even in times in our nation, use these verses in abuse of their slavery and mistreatment of slaves. Uh, and of course, that's just sin. But you can see that what God is doing here in a total different culture, a culture built on war and slavery and so forth. And yet Israel is the best example of them all. Now, case three, look at 22 through 25. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth premature, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fine, fined as the woman's husband may defi- demand of him, and he shall pay as the judge decides. But if there is any further injury, when you, when you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, a hand for a hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, this third case involves a situation where a fight breaks out, right? And there's a pregnant woman, and she gets run over or punched or kicked in her belly, and, you know, bad things go from there, Right? Uh, again, we see that the individual is responsible for the consequences of their action. You did somebody something that really hurt somebody else, and in this case may have taken a life. There is responsibility there. The details are, are rather vague. You don't know whether this is just a bystander woman walking by or it's the wife of one of these men. But whatever it is, it comes to a judgment. It comes to a judge. Somebody's responsible that struck this pregnant woman. And look, it says if she gives birth prematurely, well, that's probably death. They didn't have an an IQ, what is it called, EQ ward or whatever, Nick ward. I mean, you're in trouble if you're born early. (laughs) This is probably death here. And so here the judge now makes a decision. This was not premeditated. There was an accident in a sense that she was there. And they were to appropriate to pray for the death of an unborn. Now, we must be careful not to misuse this verse. I, 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 look, you know me, I, ugh, I go crazy over abortion. I think it's, a, it's the biggest blight on our country um, ever. But this is probably not the verse to use, and I've watched too many people misuse that. Remember, this was not premeditated murder. And there certainly is life for life here, but it falls more under the non-presumptuous act of verse 13 if it was not premeditated. And the phrase life for life is where some people get hung up. But because it was not premeditated, it falls under a law of equality. So, so they, the judge had to somehow say, hey, you killed this child and this woman. That's a heavy fine. And, and, it, and that judge you know, had to make that decision what that person had to pay. Um, so this demands that there are to be compensation for a wrong suffered um, here. Now, fourth case, 26 and 27. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroyed it, he shall go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go on the account of his tooth. Now this fourth case law here provides an example of right treatment of servants and gives just remarkable humanitarian provision for them, Right? It's interesting, when you get to the word servant here, or slave in your Bible, the Hebrew word changes back to the same word used for the female servant. The female word, the female servant word in the Hebrew is the same word we would get the maid servant from. So it's a different word. Remember I told you she's treated much different than the male when she's taken into servitude. Well now this word goes back to that to show how this relationship should be. And so one difference in this case is that the servants are not only indentured servants, but they're servants possibly from another country. So if something happens to even when you take somebody in who's not an Israelite, you are to still treat them like family. Now, these verses clearly limit um, the sort of treatment master can impose on a servant. Again, it's clear that some physical discipline is appropriate, but the master must be careful how he enforces it. Now, Verse 27, uh, verse 26, if they lose an eye, they go free, right? That's a tough one, right? Lose an eyeball, you're going to have maybe a little bit more difficult life. But verse 27 is very interesting, isn't it? If you lose a tooth, 
not just an eye, if you lose a tooth, you go free. Now, I've been missing a tooth back here for about, I don't know how long, eight, nine years. We just, it's just not a priority. But nobody's paid my house off. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I like this because it shows the kindness of God in these extremely difficult situations. This guy gets a tooth knocked out, he goes free. And this is so different than the world. And this indentured servant, would he'd be given his freedom for a loss of tooth. He, would be, he had no more debt against him. And, and I, I bring this out, these verses, because I want you to know when you read this, do not think of what comes to your mind when you think of slavery that we have seen, even in our own country or around the world or whatever you, comes to mind. This is a family situation. And if you don't treat family right in servitude or children or moms and dads or whatever, it's God brings the wrath upon you. He wants these people taken care of. And there's just too many people attacking the Bible who don't understand this. But if you love God's word, you'll dig deep and not misuse it. Now, fourth, case law about animals attacking people. Of course, this is my favorite. In the ancient world, many people owned livestock, right? That was what you did. They either plowed your field with, you farmed with them, or you carried your goods with them. And, and even though animals were domesticated, there's always problems. If you've ever spent any time around large animals, you better be careful. They can do things that they'll kick you so hard, your clothes will, you'll wake up and your clothes will be out of style. Um, they just do. If you're around a horse that you don't know, you, what do you do? You make sure you get out of the range of them kicking because you don't know. It's just... They're going to do stuff. They're a little bit unpredictable at times. And so you're careful with it. And so this is just common sense here. And so the first case presents an animal that has no previous record. Look at verse 28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be, put to, uh, be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. Now, clearly this animal has horns, <laughs> And as Bobby got a real good lesson the other day, yes, female cows have horns. I can't believe you didn't know that. <laughs> anyway, city boy, surfer. So this animal clearly has horns, and, and one of the things that they do for aggression or defense mechanisms, they love to hook you. And that's always a, a cowboy term. Be careful, don't get hooked by that one. Jeez, she'll hook you. And their horns grow out little sharp things as they grow that way as they get larger. And man, if she gets a hold of you, or he or bull gets a hold of you, it's bad. And they'll tear you up big time. And so this is one of their aggressions. And so you have to be careful of it. Now, capital punishment was mostly given, as we've seen, for humans. But here, in this case, the animal gets capital punishment, doesn't it? It's, it's deemed an accident, and the owner's not responsible if he can prove that the animal does not have a history of attack. Right? So, and you've seen this. So, maybe it happened to you. Your dog bit somebody. It's never done it before. And you, and you claim that. You go, I'm so sorry. My dog's never done this before. That's the idea of this. And there's leniency given in that, but Rover gets pelted. I mean, it's over for him. Um, and in this case, it's total loss, right? You, you have to make comp compensation, and you don't even give it a hamburger because this thing is to die under the pile of stones. Verse 29. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring, ooh, that thing should have went to the sale a long time ago, and its owner has been warned, yet it does not confine it, and it kills a man or woman, that ox is to be stoned, and its, also, uh, its owner is also to be put to death. So this situation is quite different. Notice the word warn in there. It's a legal term. It's a legal notification that this animal is dangerous. And proper steps should be taken place. When people come to our ranch, you know, they'd see our cows. I go, please do not go up there and buy those cows. They do not like people. They only handle the horseback. They do not respect you on their ground. Had a real good friend of mine. He was a, he was a good, good young cowboy, but um, he had worked on cows mostly inside fences. And he would, we were Brandon one day and sorting cows. And you know, he would sort everything on horseback because you can't get on the ground with them. So he cut mom away and run calves off. And you know, you had two, three hundred calves in a pen and all the moms over there mooing and going crazy. Well, this one cow of mine was, she was so fast and so mean. And she had a set of horns on her. And I said, Jeff, be careful with that one. I'm telling you, do not get on the ground with that cow. She will kill you. And uh, 
So anyway, we're trying to sort him out and she blessed it by the horses and got into the pen with him. And he, he sees her and he just niched, he goes, I'm gonna go get the gate to let her out. Well, the minute he hit the ground, she saw him. And it was on and it was like so motion. He had about 50 yards to get to the fence. And her, clo- her closing rate was about five times faster than he could run. And you can see it, we're, we're already crying and trying not to laugh because we can see it, there's a wreck coming. And he jumps, he's a great athlete, he played college baseball, and he jumps for the fence, which is about a six foot rail fence. And about the time he leaves the ground, he, she catches him. He went over the top of that fence and saw it go by and I mean, landed and once he got up, then we laughed. Um, but I, they, I, I warned him, I said that she will drill you. Her calf's in there and she will die to protect that calf. Be careful of her. And that's what the idea is here. If you know that animal's that way, you need to make sure that those around know that way and you take the work to do that. And if you don't, you're going to die and that animal. Because that's a problem. It was a problem with handling that. Your your livelihood is built on those animals and eating them and working them. There was all kinds of issues with livestock and God is saying, hey, let's protect the community. Make sure we handle things right. Look at verse 30 to 31. Whether it gores a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his, give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Well, here it seems the victim's family may have no, it may not have a right here to capital punishment, but you have to understand this falls back under the other one. It falls back under that he, he is going to die if you, if you have not done this. Now, he, might, he may not have known in this female or male servant gets hurt there to pay the wages that would keep them captive. So you understand what I mean. It, it falls back under these, whether you, you didn't know it did it as a first-time offense, you have to pay that, the wages of that indentured servant so they are now free. 30 circles, they're no longer a servant if that happens to them. That's not an unfair one. It's going back to that they would now be free and it falls under that the person who owned the animal did not know that they would do it. Verse 32, um, where'd it go? No, verse 33, 33 and 34. Now we get into some property rights here. I'm, I gotta go quickly as we're running out of time. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it up, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution, he shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his. Now, pits were usually dug for wells, or they dug them and lined them with rocks to keep meat longer and things a little cooler down in the, the earth down there, and so that's probably what was going on here. But if you did that, you were to rope off or mark, or you know, we would put orange cones or something up, that there's a giant pit there so you don't fall into it. And if you don't do this, then you need to pay for the cost of this animal. I mean, remember, that's like your car. You dug a big hole in your driveway, and your neighbor came over to visit you, and he drove his Mercedes into it. <laughs> Guess what you're paying for? You now own a Mercedes. It's down in a hole, but it's yours now. Pay for it. You know, I have had issues through our, in our churches through the years where I had men who ha- borrowed or something, they had something of somebody else's and they broke it and they wouldn't fix it for that person. Guys, if you borrow somebody's chainsaw, which you probably shouldn't, that's a tool you shouldn't borrow, but if you borrow it and break it, fix it. If, you, if you've done something that hurts something of your neighbors, make it right. Now in this case, if your neighbor's donkey falls in there, at least you get to eat the donkey. But make it Right? Don't. And, and I've seen this happen. The ranching world, this is just, these things are so set in the ranching world. You run somebody's cow over, you deal with it. I hit somebody else's cow one night, destroyed our pickup. Had a load of cattle in a trailer behind me. We were probably, you know, 20,000 pounds rolling down the highway. My neighbor's cow, black cow, midnight. Gene and I, we had sold a really nice truck, had this truck because we were just broke. And I said, I was just saying, this truck's going to be okay. About the time I said that, she walked out in front of me and bam, hit her at about 60 miles an hour, destroyed the truck. Two babies in car seats. I went to the owners, Feather River Cattle Company, I'll never forget, and I said, his name is Bob, who ran the cows. I said, Bob, I killed one of your cows last night. I need to pay you for it. He said, man, you've done so much work for me. Why don't you ride for me for a week? We'll call it good. I said, done. And, and see, it's just taking care of things and being honest and not trying to swindle people out of things. 
Verse, lastly, verse 35, um, 36. If one's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox, divide up the price equally, and also they shall divide up the ox, the dead ox. So you get your money back and you get some hamburger. Or if it's known, if it's known that the ox was previously, it had the habit of goring, yet its owner is, did not confine it, he shall surely pay for ox for ox and the dead animal shall become his. And so these are just simple principles. If you have an ox that you know has been unruly and it attacks somebody, you're gonna have to pay for that. You're gonna have to make restitution and there's always been a market price. Let me wind this up because I'm done here. Even our best systems, which will be corrupted by depravity. Our justice system was one of the better ones. Um, And I say that because we've lost a lot of that. Um, But even a best judicial system is corrupted by depravity. And when when I studied this, I wrote, I said, well, Israel's laws were to help maintain decency, right? It was to strive for fairness and justice, particularly for those who were less fortunate. But as always, the real problem is the heart of man, isn't it? Man is wicked. And even though you establish these God-given laws, man is inherently wicked. His heart is deceitful above all else, the Bible tells us. And let me remind you of this. And there's, there's people in the political world and, and in this world, there is no nirvana, there is no utopia, there is no heaven on earth. We live in a fallen depraved society so God gave us this stuff so we could manage through this life and not kill each other (laughs) and yet it's so neglected now everything under the sun has been corrupted Solomon said by sin so we must be careful not to put such high expectations and I and I feel this a little bit it's why Jason did our prayer group the other the last Wednesday I said let's just pray let's let's pray for our anxieties and let's pray for our president let's pray for the situation because sometimes we we just think we have been so spoiled here how would you like to be raised in this you go yeah servants were taken care of pretty good well just <laughs> come on would you want to be raised at this time Praise God we live in this society and I think sometimes we think we're in Nirvana or boy, we want utopia here. And, there, and there's all kinds of people think they can get it. They think they can pass enough laws, give enough money away, tax this and do that and all that in order to have it. They're never gonna have it. We live in a sinful world and we die and we go to be with the Lord. That's our great hope. But in this life, you and I can love each other. And I wrote this in my notes. This should not be of the church. The church is the closest thing to heaven. There is no closer thing to heaven than the church. Do you understand that? And yet, the church will bite and devour itself sometimes. And we don't trust Christ. We don't go to the word of God to solve things. We don't love his will more than ours and all of a sudden we don't like each other so we sit on opposite sides of the church or we don't put up, we leave a church because there's someone there we don't like and so forth and all that goes on and, and, and that's sin driven and it's just problems, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, love one another, forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. Come into this church with, with a clean heart and say, God, I wanna be right with you and right with all men as far as possible of me. So if you have an issue with somebody, go to them. Ask their forgiveness or, or say, I, maybe I have a misunderstanding. I, I, I think there's something between us. Could, can we sit down and talk or could we maybe get one of the pastors to help a little bit because I don't want to live this way. The church is the one place I don't have to worry about somebody sticking a knife in my back. This is a place of freedom here. We, we are the best utopia on the earth. And let me say this, and I've said this so many times, this is the best church I've ever been in in 36 years. And don't break your arm over your back. It's why we came. We saw, we believe we saw that God could let us do great things for his glory here. That's why we came. And we're five years into this and we still believe that. And yet, I know how sinful all of our hearts can be and how that can be broken so quick. Sin must be dealt with, personally and even corporately at times. And so everything we have, everything we have in this life is in Christ, found in this Bible, and we can believe it. The world thinks we're fools, huh? 
Someday that'll get reversed. (laughs) Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and we will confess it with joy. Amen. Father, this is fun, Lord, to look at this. We long to have some kind of peace in this earth, Lord, and live lives of quietness and just in enjoying what you've done, but that may not always be the case. Any of our brothers and sisters down through the church age never saw any of this kind of peace. They were slayed for their belief. Their dads were burned at the stake or run through with a sword. Parents were divided and awful things were done to children. We've lived in such a sweet time of peace here, Lord, and yet we don't know how long that'll last. But Lord, when the church gathers, whether it is public or underground, it is the sweetest, safest, best place in the world to be because we have Christ. We're forgiven sinners, and so we can forgive others. We can be loving and patient and kind because you have done that to us. And Lord, we should be such a bright light in this ugly world. And Lord, I know you're using that. You're drawing people to this church. Lord, I pray for this core here on Wednesday night here, October 7th, that this core of people right here, those watching at home that could not be here, that we would be a light. This core would be a light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And people would see that those people are happy. They're kind to each other. They love to sing and they love to listen to the word of God and, and they forgive one another and they're patient with each other. And they don't let kids divide them up and they don't let all these things that ruffle the world, they, they seem to get along, Lord. Lord, please let that through the, through the motivation of the gospel be the message that goes out through this church. And Lord, bring as many as you seem fit but cause this core to be ready for them that we, pastors and shepherds, will lead this core in such a right biblical mentality. And the core of this church will reach out and surround these other lambs that come here. And we'll together live in harmony, Lord. Quickly forgiving one another when we hurt each other and moving forward up to greener pastures. Lord, we do long for the day when we'll be in heaven with you. We are a little bit envious of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. But we do long for that day. The Bible tells us to long for your appearing. And so we look at this old world and its problems and we long for it. But you have given us a place of haven right here, the church, in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to be good stewards of that. Thank you for these dear folks coming out tonight. Bless them. Bless those who are watching at home. Lord, just may you cause us to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.